From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm Eric Cressy, and I'm really excited that we've got an awesome guest for you today in two-time American League Cy Young Award winner, Corey Kluber. He's been a, a mainstay at CSP since 2010, and we really got to know him well. And I think it's really led us to a position where we got some good questions to ask where we can talk about his long-term approach to development, what he does between starts, what he does between pitches, everything from pitch design to training to throwing programs, how he reads hitters, um, and, and a lot of great stuff. So I think this is going to be an excellent episode that really gets you to appreciate not just how much of a competitor Corey is, but how much pride he takes in his craft and, and what he brings to the table each day as a, as a big league pitcher. With that said, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients. They're designed to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas of health, energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. If you jump over to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, you can claim a special offer today of 20 free travel packets valued at $79 with your first purchase. In spite of the fact that I'm a supplement minimalist, this is a product that I recommend to just about all of our clients. Um, I really view it a lot more like a whole food nutritional insurance policy. They've got ingredients that have been carefully selected at the highest quality that range from essential vitamins and minerals to digestive enzymes to prebiotics and probiotics. All this is done maintaining a zero compromise approach in the formulation. It's all plant-based, sourced from whole foods of the highest quality. There's no chemicals, artificial colors, sweeteners, uh, artificial flavors, added sugar, pesticides, wheat, dairy, gluten. It's, it's really good for just about everybody. Um, and really, I, I love it on you know our, our athlete side for younger athletes who may have holes in their diets and also like a lot for college and pro athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always on hand the travel packets are particularly clutch when our, our athletes go on the road and need to kind of fill in the cracks on whatever it is they're eating so really like it from a convenience standpoint and, and really on a personal level I'm a husband I'm a father of, of three kids age four and under I'm an entrepreneur with multiple businesses in multiple states and an avid lifter and we split our our time between two parts of the country. So needless to say, the, the Cressy life can be stressful and sleep deprivation is a, is a real thing. Um, with that in mind, I lean heavily on Athletic Greens for, for part of my immune support. And I know my wife really, really likes it. And, and we believe firmly that it's made a big difference in keeping us healthy in spite of this crazy Cressy lifestyle we live. So with that said, I'd encourage you to, to get all your vital nutrition in 30 seconds or less. You can head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy. That's C-R-E- S-S-E-Y, and they've got a special gift of 20 free travel packets worth $79. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy. Now with all this out of the way, let's get to the good stuff. Today's guest is a pitcher for the Cleveland Indians who grew up in Texas and went on to attend Stetson University, where he's the Atlantic Sun Conference Pitcher of the Year in 2007. He was drafted by the Padres in the fourth round of the 2007 MLB Draft, and shortly thereafter was traded to the Indians in 2010. He made his Major League debut in September of 2011, and after that established himself as a mainstay in their rotation in 2013. He's since gone on to be an All-Star three times, while winning the AL Cy Young in 2014 and 2017, with top 10 finishes in every year since 2014. He's one of only two pitchers on the planet who has thrown 200 plus innings and had 200 plus strikeouts in each of the last five seasons, and the only pitcher that has done so while throwing two complete games in each of those seasons. He's also been a Cressy Sports performance guy since the offseason of 2010 and is a mainstay at our Massachusetts facility in the offseason. We're excited to welcome Corey Kluber. Hey, Corey, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. So obviously I've known you for probably over 10 years now. I was actually uh, joking as I wrote out the, the questions on this, that on, on your he initial health history at Crazy Sports Performance, your wife's maiden name was actually listed. So we've been working together since before you were married, which is probably a decade now. So here's the thing I want to ask you is, 
so when you first came in, we did our, our night with the pros at the, the facility in Massachusetts. And I'll distinctly remember a question someone asked uh, about how you wound up at Stetson, being a Texas guy. What was it about Stetson, um, which now has two Cy Young Award winners under its belt, that was, was what drew you there out of high school? I mean, I think it was a couple different things. Uh, you know, I looked at schools in Florida, I looked at schools in Texas, looked at schools out west. Um, you know, some of them I got less of an opportunity at Stetson. Some of them I might have had an equal opportunity. But I think the two things that kind of drove me the most were, number one, it was where I felt the most comfortable when I went on my visit. Um, you know, I felt like the smaller school kind of, kind of was a good fit for me and I liked everybody that was involved with the program that I met and stuff. I felt like I would fit in right away. And then the second opportunity, the second reason was I was going to have an opportunity to earn a chance to play right away. You know, I wasn't going to be given anything, but there's also some bigger schools I looked at where it's kind of, you go in there and you just sit your freshman year and you learn and you red shirt and then, you know, your second year you play and that I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't feel like it, it had much, benefit to me to to go to a bigger name school but not have a chance to do anything for a year absolutely so when you first got there did you struggle much or was it the kind of thing where you hit the ground running and and you know handled college you know stuff uh, particularly well from the college standpoint i think i was fine mm -hmm. um from the baseball standpoint yeah i definitely had some struggles early on i think that that bump up in in competition uh you know just learning how to how to face better hitters more consistently. I mean, obviously, a, a college lineup is going to be deeper than a high school lineup. You know, you get, there's there's different ways you got to pitch to guys. Different things work, don't work. So, I think there's definitely some some bumps in the road there early on. But you know, I think that the one thing that that I did well, I guess, was was being open to to learning and being coached. You know, I think that um, I've always liked to be coached and you know work on things not really one of those guys that wants to be left alone and figured out on my own so I think that having coaches that that you know gave me good information and and helped me to address areas that might help me improve went a long ways mm -hmm. and that that actually kind of feeds right into the, the next question so a lot of times with like the guys that we have in people often ask what the biggest things that they can learn from our, you know, our more successful athletes. So you hear about like a, a Scherzer and I always emphasize like Max always finds a way to make things competitive. Like he, he only knows competing. You look at like a Syndergaard, Noah's like a, a real nerd for reading about training and nutrition. Like he's a real student of the game. And when people ask me about you, I always emphasize the the concepts of process and precision that, you know, every rep is exactly the same. It's executed flawlessly, whether we're talking about, you know, catch play at 60 feet, long toss at 200, lifting, mobility work. There's just so much attention to detail. And I don't think people realize that, you know, like you just didn't like, you weren't, you weren't born a Cy Young Award winner. They don't realize that you, you know, you racked up over 700 innings and in parts of eight seasons in the minor leagues. Was that a blessing for you and that it gave you a chance to kind of learn the process and, you know, critically differentiate between what, what are bad processes versus bad outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, Obviously, everybody would like to get to the big leagues, you know, as soon as possible. But I think that the the path that I did take of of going through struggles and spending a lot of time having to learn to make adjustments and, like you said, learn those processes, learn what works for me, what doesn't work for me. Um, you know, I think I did it for a, a long enough period of time in the minor leagues. I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do or what I needed to do. So at that point, when when I did finally make it to the major leagues, I wasn't still searching for those routines that, that, that process that worked for me. I think I, I had an idea of what I at least physically wanted to do or needed to do. And then from that point in time, it's, it's all about learning, you know, learning the league, learning hitters. And at least if you have that, that foundation or that base of, of what you need to do to get yourself prepared physically, then the rest of it is just kind of, educating yourself would you say that was like a, a nature or nurture thing like did you have that precision and attention to detail when you were you know were you 13 or is it some is it something you've always had or you had to hone it by being really cognizant of specific practices over the years i mean i think i always enjoyed like 
the process of stuff like i enjoyed when i was a kid i enjoyed like hitting off a tee instead of just going and having somebody throw to me or things like that but i think that at the same time the maybe the patience required to approach things that way probably develops over time i think that initially it might be difficult to uh to kind of talk yourself into taking the time to to go through a, a 30 minute movement routine with you know attention to detail just because it can get it can get boring it, it you don't necessarily feel like there's a direct you know result from it yeah. but i think it's just learning that patience to do it do it properly and you know over time the more you do it the more you consistently do it then you start to see the benefits of it Absolutely. And like put into practice. So uh, I'll throw a scenario. So game one, 2016 World Series, it was like 38 degrees out. It was, it was freezing cold. It was the night the Cavs got their championship rings next door. So there were so many people in like a small amount of space. You couldn't even send text messages like the, the towers were overloaded. And I'll never forget like watching you. I was in like the left field side and it was like the pregame warmups. So you're throwing to Perez who, you know, Gomes had kind of been your regular catcher. So you somewhat of a new catcher, but someone who's, who's handled you a little bit. While the, uh, the game is getting ready to go, you and Lester are both out long tossing in the outfield. And I just distinctly remember there were basically the biggest game of your life. And there were about a hundred elementary school age kids, like getting set up with like the national anthem flag. Like the outfield was just absolute chaos. And I just remember you being like a hundred percent locked in, like nothing else was going on. What goes through your mind in the, the, you know, days and hours ahead of that start. And you went up, I think it was a major league record. You punched out eight in the first three innings. I remember you saying that the baseball felt markedly different when you picked it up, you know, the playoff ball, you know, before the game got started, like uh, talk about that experience just a little bit and, and what went into those hours before the game, just to make sure that there's no deviation from the normal process that you've experienced. Yeah. I mean, I think that whether it's a spring training game or a regular season game, or that was that year was the first time I'd ever pitched in the playoffs. So my first playoff game, my first world series game, I think that regardless of which, what the scenario is for a start, I pretty much follow, you know, the same routine the day of my start. Um, whether that just creates that, you know, that that comfort to to follow that routine. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying I'm superstitious to the point where I have to put my left sock on before my right or anything mm. like that. But I I go through, you know, I try to time out what time I wake up, you know, when I eat throughout that day, just so that I I kind of know I'm going to feel a certain way when the game comes. Um, but I mean. I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't for each one of those playoff starts or ALCS starts or World Series starts, if there wasn't more adrenaline nerves, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that it's that's natural. I mean, if you didn't have that stuff, it just means that you don't care. But I think that even despite those those nerves and that excitement about it, I think that going through that routine kind of works as a, a way to reassure yourself that you know yes it's the world series but it's still it's still something you've done however many times i think that each kind of step along the way that you go through that it just kind of brings that that level of comfort to all right i've been here i've done this i've done this i've done this i've done this and to the point where you know you almost just fall into that routine of you know, it's my start day. This is what I need to do next. This is what I need to do next. And that kind of blocks out all those extra distractions. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll get a little more specific now. So let's talk about the breaking ball, which is obviously one of the better swing and miss pitches in baseball. Um, and I think you remember you saying you, you use the same grip still that you learned in college, correct? Yeah. When I got to college, I threw, I basically threw a fastball, a circle change up and like a big loopy curveball, um, which in high school worked great college didn't work so well so that was one of those those learning moments that we were talking about earlier um you know my breaking ball didn't hit or saw it right away things like that and we had to work on a new one because this one was completely ineffective so um we initially tried to start throwing a cutter because we thought it would complement my fastball better and not be able to you know be something that hitters could pick up as easily. Um, and I think just I'll, I've always been somebody who kind of 
manipul- manipulates the ball with my hand. Um, I don't necessarily just grab it and throw it. I kind of like to feel, you know, moving a ball this way, moving a ball that way. Um, and so in trying to make it a cutter, it ended up probably being more of a traditional slider. Mm-hmm. But it worked at that point in time. And I think just through through throwing it more often with that grip and learning it, it kind of developed into what it is now, which is probably in between a slider and a curveball. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's the same grip. I mean, it's just it's the same grip that I've used, just learning how to, like I said, manipulate the ball differently to make it maybe have a little more depth or a little more break horizontally, things like that. Yeah, I know Max, one of the lines that I, I've heard him drop is that, you know, you need to make sure you learn one breaking ball before you try to learn two. So he's obviously figured out the slider and now added the curveball over the last couple of years. What what do you do when you when you learn a breaking ball with respect to like learning to shape it differently? How how long did it take for you to kind of realize that you could make it eighty two versus eighty six, depending on what you wanted to do, and and also being careful not to have it kind of blend with your cutter? Um, do you have any like tips for up and coming athletes who feel like they have one but might have the potential to either do something different with it or actually develop a you know a slider if they have a curveball or a curveball if they have a slider? I mean, I agree with Max. I think that you have to. You have to become consistent with the one first. You know, you have to get to the point where you feel comfortable repeating it. You can throw where you want to. You know what the what the shape of it's going to be because then you can then you can from that point throw it to certain areas or based on what a hitter's doing. You know, try to throw it according to them. But then I think as you become more comfortable with that consistency then you can start to kind of see okay this is what i know it does when i do it well if i'm not doing it well you know if i'm if i'm leaving it arm side what's the difference between the two and then you kind of try to find that middle ground to maybe say okay if i'm leaving it arm side i'm probably getting on the side of it if i get on the side of it but still get out in front maybe i'm going to get more of that that side to side break but I have to get out in front with it. If I don't get out in front with it, it's going to be the one that I leave arm side. Or if you're trying to get more depth on it, you know, maybe just getting that little last. For me, the feeling is getting my hand over top of it, just that little extra bit. Um, and, and is that stuff you'll find like in the bullpen before a game? Like you'll recognize that you're you're slipping into one of those tendencies, and you can make a correction. Or is it one of those things where you have to come back and watch video, whether it's between innings or between games, where you you find yourself slipping at times? Yeah, ideally you could find it in a bullpen or in the middle of an at-bat or in the middle of an inning. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes you you don't have that feel. You know, I think that some days you have a better feel for pitches than others. And some days if if you don't execute a pitch, you can kind of make that that recognition right away that this is what I did and this is what I need to do. Or there's also going to be days where you don't execute a pitch and not really sure what went wrong. And those are the ones where, you know, whether it be a pitching coach or a catcher, kind of they recognize something or you have to go back and ideally in between innings, try to dissect the problem and figure out how to fix it. Or sometimes even that doesn't work and you got to go back to the drawing board after the start. Um, But I mean, yeah, there's going to be days where things don't feel right. And then I think at that point in time, you just kind of got to get creative in a sense and go out there and okay, it's not the way I want it to be, but I still got to figure out a way to get out. So the, actually what builds on that. So uh, Rob Friedman, the pitching ninja from Twitter actually sent me this question to ask you. And it kind of leads into that. He said, he's curious about mentally, what are you doing with your pre-pitch routine? So especially when you look down, you know, and you kind of slowly look up towards the plate. Um, what's going through your mind? Uh, is that a, a you know a conscious reset that you've developed over the course of time? But um, and and when did that kind of come about? Yeah, I think that's just that's my way of. I don't even know what I'm doing at 95 percent <laughs> of the time, you know. But I think that's just my way of kind of getting myself into you know pitch mode. You know, you have your you throw the pitch. You either execute it or you don't. Guy gets a hit, whatever. You, you analyze it. What went wrong? What I do right? This or that? What do I want to throw next? Um, all that kind of stuff. But then I think that at some point in time, you have to make that that transfer from analyzing what happened before to now moving on 
to the next pitch. And I think that that's kind of when I when I look up, that's kind of when I'm at the point where all right, I'm ready to throw this pitch now. You can't be analytical and competitive at the same time. At least so, I can't. Yeah. Well, that's that's a Brian Kaplan line. Who's, he's our pitching coordinator in Florida. And he's dropped that a, a number of times with guys, and it makes perfect sense. Um, so let's talk about, you know, obviously one of the big things that took you from, you know, a guy who, you know, as of 2011, 12 was kind of a fringe big league. Even 13, you were up and down just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and one of the big changes was the work you and, and Ruben Diablo did in, in AAA with the Indians that, you know, the addition of the two seem really changed the course of career. So talk a little about what, what led to the change and then we'll, we'll build on that discussion a little bit. I mean, in, in the simplest form, what led to the change is that my fastball wasn't very good. Um, you know, I, I could, I could always get swing and miss because of my breaking ball, but I walked too many guys because I didn't have fastball command. If I fell behind, I'd get hit around because I didn't have fastball command. Um, you know, I, I could I could throw strikes, so to speak, with it. But a lot of times I felt myself being, you know, cautious throwing a fastball or not being aggressive with it because I didn't have the confidence that I could put it where I wanted to. You know, if, if I needed to throw a strike, I could throw a strike, but it's it's a pitch that a hitter's, you know, sitting there hoping you throw them. So that's that's not a good feeling. Um, and, yeah, we, we basically got to a point where – I had struggled for a a good a good length of time, probably a month or two, and you know we were almost at a desperation stage where I was supposed to have a bullpen one day, and I got hit around the start before, and it was kind of like you know we're we're talking about it and what happened, and it, it keeps going back to I didn't have command of my fastball, I didn't have command of my fastball, and eventually, if if something's not working, you got to change it. You know, you can't just keep hoping it's going to work out, and so. I'd always thrown a four seam grip up to that point and never really messed around with a two seamer just because I couldn't, it kind of goes back to what we're talking about with the breaking ball. I couldn't consistently execute a four seamer. So I didn't see the sense in trying to add another fastball at the point in time, which, you know, maybe it was, maybe it was not the right thing to do, but you know, we just during that bullpen decided that now's the time, you know, now we need to, to try something different and, for whatever reason, it, it felt more comfortable in my hand, and I felt like I could, you know, get to where I wanted to at release point a little bit better with with that grip as opposed to a forcing grip. And you know, from that point on, it, it gave me it gave me confidence in throwing fastball as opposed to being a pitch that I shied away from or I didn't want to throw. All of a sudden, I had something that I felt like I could execute and put where I wanted to, and then it, that develops you know confidence in the pitch and then you start to learn that you can do this to get it to go glove side do this to get it to go arm side and then the whole you know being able to throw a pitch and execute it where you want that sort of sort of stuff comes but i don't think that that really is possible if you're hesitant or not confident in throwing a pitch yeah it makes and it's interesting too because you know, like I've, I've talked with Blake trying and so he added a, a really good cutter last year, but what people don't know is, I mean, Blake threw that cutter just playing catch before games for probably a year before he was like actually comfortable to roll it out in games. Like that's an, it definitely is a desperation move to be like, all right, we'll try it in the pen and then and go out and do it. So, um, you know, it's, it kind of goes against everything you think from motor learning standpoint. And usually it's like an off season adjustment, but obviously it worked Did it. So what are the what were the hardest parts of learning the two seam? Obviously, it felt more comfortable. But what were the mistakes that that you made? But also, what were the mistakes that you? Obviously, you get teammates and you know off season guys, everybody who comes to you and asks what makes your two seam so good. Uh, what are the mistakes you see them making? What were the ones that you struggled with? I think that at the very beginning, I think that the reason that it came to me quickly is because I didn't try to make it a two seam, so to speak. All, all I tried to do was throw it to a spot and execute a pitch. Cause that's, you know, that's all I had ever done with the four seam was try to throw it straight to a spot. I think that where, where I and a lot of people probably get into trouble with it is trying to, to make it a two seam or make it run or make it sink. And you, you start to get on the side of the ball or underneath the ball and, you know, it gets bigger hitters can see it you can see it and they recognize it and it 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 essentially loses that effectiveness 
And I think the there's some really good video of you from the 2016 World Series that I know I'm sure Christian Wonders has, has shown it to you a few times. Is just that what a lot of people don't realize is how long you stay in supination on a two seamer. A lot of people think you have to like aggressively turn it over into pronation early in the deliver and, and try to make it do that stuff. But in reality, you're you're powering through the baseball and you're staying online with it, and and that grip is taking care of the rest, and that's where the late movement is coming from instead of trying to be in too big too early. Um, so. In general, though, baseball is getting away from two seams, right? You know, we're seeing more and more guys, you know, trying to find ways to optimize spin rate with four seamers and pitch more up than they are down. What do you think's been your? Why is it that you've been more successful staying with the two seam? Granted, you, you still do throw the four in, in certain situations, but why have you been so successful with the two seam, even when when others have started to struggle with it more and more? Um, you know, I think that. I think that number one, guys throw so hard now. I'm not one of those guys. You know, I can't sit there and, and rear back with four seam fastballs and blow it by guys. So I think that I still have to rely on executing a pitch to a spot and pitching more so than throwing. Um, you know, and and I think it also goes to the fact that that's that's what I feel more comfortable with is throwing that as opposed to four seam. Um, there's there's a lot of data that's out there that I have you know, as well, that says that my four seam might play better to certain hitters than my two seam does. But, you know, if, if I don't feel confident in throwing my four seam to that guy, it's not going to play up to the, what those numbers say. Or, you know, historically, if I've, if I've faced a guy and gotten him out with a two seam, but a scattering report or data says that, you know, he doesn't handle four seams well, you're going to always go back to what you have success with. That's what's going to get, again, confidence. That's what's going to give you confidence is what you've done and what you've seen have success for you. And so I think that despite more people throwing four seams, pitching up in the zone, you know, that's not what I do well. That's not what makes me good. So that's kind of the reason that I don't think that I would be successful kind of going that that route absolutely so since we're on like the the pitch selection side of things i know you and you and christian wonders had a had a really good time talking change up this off season it was it was a high priority what were what were some of the you know historically you've struggled with a change up your usage was like i think it was like 12 percent you know back in like 2012 when you were a, a new big leaguer and then it's been down in like the anywhere from kind of like four to six percent over the last couple of years um it was up in, in spring training this year and you threw it quite a bit last year what were the biggest changes you guys made with the change up this year what's i know you've joked like hey tell max to teach me his change up like over the years what did you change uh you know this off season that's made it feel better out of your hand for me the for me my problem with it has always been that I never feel consistent with that pitch. I can I can throw a good one, but it doesn't necessarily register to me as why was that one good as opposed to the one before it that wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Um, just don't I don't feel like I have a great a great feel for that pitch. I think that's something that you're always working on is having a good feel for all your pitches. And you know when <clears throat> I think it, again it goes back to probably not having as high a level of confidence in that pitch as the other ones. Um, but I think that, you know, when Christian and I were talking about it, we, we kind of said that we said that I've, if you look at it, my changeup plays well when I throw it, when I execute it, you know, if I throw a bad one, obviously doesn't get good results, but when I execute it and throw a good one, it plays well to hitters. Number one, because they're not expecting it, but you know, it plays off my fastball. And so we kind of, talked about how I grip it, how I throw it, things like that. And just trying to find a way to be more consistent with it. And it ended up, we, we changed my, my grip is the same as far as the positioning of my hand. We just moved my hand to a different place on the ball. So whether you want to say my grip is different or my grip's the same, but holding the ball in a different spot just to, it feels closer to the way my fastball feels so I, I think that then that gives you the reassurance that this ball is not going to slip out of my hand I'm not going to spike it 50 feet or that kind of stuff and then when you have that 
that feeling that you can throw it to where you want to, then you start to throw it with more conviction and you get better action on it. Or you can start to, I mean, the other night I threw a, a right on right change up for a strike. It was probably the first time I've done that in a handful of years. I don't think I've um, ever seen one. I think I've watched every start since 2013 or so. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's just that that comes from number one, it's spring training. So if you're going to work on something, this is the time to do it. But even in a spring training game, you know, if you have to have, conviction to throw that pitch as a right-handed pitcher um so i think that just having having the ball feel closer to the way my other pitches feel in my hand kind of allows you to go out there and not have to try to guide it or force it to a spot but but actually throw it and and let that action take over instead of trying to like we talked about manipulate it absolutely and and so you're speaking a lot to like you know, kind of comfort drives a lot of things is how does the ball feel in your hand and how can you build from that? So is there like a, is there like a tripwire for you in the bullpen when you know, you know, there's a certain pitch or there's a certain ability to locate where, you know, everything is going to be, you know, this is going to be a game where I go out and I punch out 16 or 17 and, and at the other spectrum, are there days when, you know, all right, I'm not feeling this. I need to make an adjustment and pitch to a different strength today. Like does the, does the bullpen tell you everything you need to know? I would say but between the bullpen and playing catch and kind of maybe the maybe the first hit or two just kind of seeing how cuz I think as in a bullpen or playing catch you can think that you see something but when you see how a hitter's reacting to it I think that that really tells you the truth but I think that for me the biggest thing is when I can get that comeback on my fastball to glove side I mean I think that that's when I'm getting that, I kind of know that my delivery is in a sweet spot. Um, you know, I'm I'm getting extension. I'm staying online. You know, my backside is getting through all that stuff that I need to do to execute that pitch to that spot. When I can do that consistently, that's when I know that, all right, my delivery is where it needs to be. Now it's just a matter of going out and, and executing each pitch. It's not like, oh, shoot, this is out of whack. Now I got to figure out how to do this. While still trying to go out and execute a pitch, so that I can put it where I want to put it. If it, and that, I mean I've t- said that to guys a lot. It's like everything plays off a of glove side fastball. If you can execute that, you can figure everything out. Out. Do you have a what's what's the actual sequencing of your your pregame bullpen? How many pitches do you throw? Is it a certain number of each, or will you tinker with it based on how you feel? It's pretty pretty much set in stone. I mean, whether that's shocking. Whether I ex- <laughs> whether I execute, yeah, whether I execute. Um, 10% of the pitches or 90% of the pitches started, I pretty much throw right around 35 pitches, pretty, the same routine, wind up first, then out of the stretch, just, you know, throwing fastballs and then throwing your off-speed pitches off the fastballs, going back to the fastball, then your next off-speed pitch back to the fastball. Because I think that for me, I have to have the ability to put my fastball where I want to in order for the other stuff to play off of it. Um, so that's kind of how I mentally go through it during during the warm-up is all right execute your fastball now execute your change up off of that go back to executing the fastball execute your cutter off of that execute another fastball execute your breaking ball off of that so building on that you actually just alluded to like the concept of like reading the first couple of hitters i'm going to throw a stat at you um I, I can't remember if i mentioned this before in 2017 there were only two pitchers on the planet whose ops against actually went down the third time to the order it was you and Max. You guys both won Cy Youngs that year. I think obviously that's in part because you have a diverse offering and are, are less predictable, right? You know, you're you're both throwing, you know, not just a, a breaking ball, a changeup, and a fastball. You know, like in your case, you have two fastballs. You have a breaking ball you can shape differently. You have the cutter. You have the changeup. Max obviously has a, a four seam. He's got a cutter. He's got a slider. He's got a curveball. He's got a great changeup. So, you know, part of it's just, it's it's easy to be less predictable when you have a big offering, you know, and certainly you guys are both well conditioned that you, you do well into those innings, but it also has to come back to your reading hitters. And this was actually what Christian wanted to know about the most is, you know, what are you looking for at hitters on a pitch by pitch basis, you know, as you sequence, whether it's lefties, righties or specific pitches, are there, are there things that, you know, are jumping right out at you and, and can you see it in real time or do you have to watch video? I think that you learn to see it in real time. I think that, I'm looking at the way a hitter reacts to a pitch, not necessarily. I mean, you go into a game with an idea of how you want to attack each hitter, 
based on scouting reports, based on what you've done against them in the past. But I think that I I try to pay attention to the way hitters react to pitches. So if if I throw a fastball away to a guy and it looks like it gets on him, then, uh, to me that means that okay, he didn't he didn't quite pick that up or he reacted to it a little bit later. So you know I can. I can stay out there, whereas if you throw one and a guy's right on it and he fouls it right back, okay, he got he he read that ball well out of my hand. You know, he he was on it. Let's make an adjustment off of that, whether it's be throw a breaking ball or now throw him a fastball inside or throw him a cutter to try to get him to to ground out to shortstop. So I think that it's it's not for me. Um, I'm not married to a scouting port. Like we have an idea of of how we want to attack guys. But then I think that you have to, or at least for me, you know, you have to take that idea and then use the real time re- uh, reaction that you get from them, the feedback from that to then make your determination on what's next. And I think that a lot of that also goes to you knowing a catcher and a catcher knowing you and being comfortable with each other to where, you know, honestly, I don't like to shake that much. I was just going to say that you, because you rarely do, so you must be very sure of it. <laughs> I, I think that it goes. The reason that I don't like to shake is because I feel like it messes with. Personally, for me, it messes with my rhythm to to shake a bunch, and to, I, I would rather kind of have confidence in the catcher that you know we're on the same page and this is what just happened. And now we both know this is what we want to do next. They put a finger down. All right, let's go with it. There's a reason why he's doing this, not, not questioning him. And then all of a sudden I'm questioning him. I'm questioning myself. Is this the right pitch? Did he see something I didn't see? And so I think that I put a lot of faith in the catcher and in in just in the fact that we've discussed things beforehand and we are approaching the game the same way and want to, want to attack guys the same way and we have the same idea of, of how I'm going to be successful doing that. So, and that you literally started to answer my next question. So I, I joke with guys that my favorite player that I've never trained is Jan Gomes. Cause I've, I've watched him catch you every game from or pretty much every game since 2013 or so. Right. And, and so Gomes has obviously moved on to Washington. So you're, you know, you're throwing to to Roberto, who you've thrown to in the past, but you're also throwing to you know some new guys that you haven't thrown to. So, and I think that's a good lesson for you know you'll get minor league guys who might throw to eight catchers in a season, or guys going to spring training who are throwing to catchers they've never met. What what what's kind of like your your goal in in, in initially meeting with a catcher? You know, uh, talk about giving feedback to them and and building that rapport. Is is you know help help a young pitcher kind of ask for what he needs from a catcher um, if he's kind of putting the situation. I think first and foremost, you have to know what, what it is you need. You know, I think there's some guys who need, you know, they need a catcher to, to kind of get on them and, and if, you know, kind of fire them up, so to speak at times. I think there's guys who need a catcher that is going to have, you know, a calming influence over them. I think that there's some guys who, want to talk in between innings, want to talk in between stars. There's guys who just want to be left alone. So I think that you first have to recognize what what works for you. But then I think it, it just goes back to initially you kind of <clears throat> feel each other out, get to know each other. And for me personally, or for us during, during bullpens, you know, they're seeing how your delivery looks from their standpoint, like they might've seen you on TV, but from their perspective now catching you, it's a lot different how your pitches play, things like that. And then you're kind of getting a feel for where they set up, how they receive the ball. And then from that point in time, it's just talking with each other, collaborating with each other on, you know, what they see, what you see, what you want to do, what they think you could do. And it's just talking and having conversations and, and kind of learning. And that's, that's how you get on the same page is, through talking and communicating with each other. And I think that from that point in time, it just starts to develop and become stronger. Absolutely. No, well, and that's predominantly feedback between starts, but it needs to happen between innings as well. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, I usually 
literally walking off the field every inning will talk to the catcher about whether it be the hitter that was just in there or pitches throughout that inning or, you know, if they see something like, I mean, it, it a lot of times it doesn't even wait until we're in the dugout. Yeah. If I, I mean, it, it could even go as far as if, if I give up an RBI single and I'm backing up home plate, you know, walking back to the mound, getting the ball back from him, we'll, we'll have a quick, you know, one or two sentences about something that, just not not waiting too long to do it, but I think that that's you know that's the working together part of it. You're not out there on the mound by yourself. You know, you're working with that guy. The two of you are a team. Absolutely. Um, so we'll shift gears a little bit and we'll talk a little bit of kind of throwing slash training. So you're you're obviously known for your durability. You know, five plus years over 200 innings pitched, and you know from work from working with you, we've we've come to realize it's kind of a moving target. You you know you you see how you respond to those those you know high workloads whether it's how long you take off in the off season um and what you do between starts so let's first talk about your your five-day rotation that you employ in terms of throwing so from the day that the the minute that the game ends what does your throwing session uh, look like before your next start the day after i pitch um i like to throw because i like to to get my arm moving and feel like things aren't getting stuck so to speak from you know pitching the night before day before so i like to throw that day i don't necessarily throw aggressively that day Mm -hmm. i might go back to 100 feet 120 feet more so just i want to feel my arm moving you know i'm not i'm not necessarily getting after it i'm not trying to execute a pitch or anything like that i i I want to feel my arm in certain spots yes but it's not it's not an aggressive throwing session just more so trying to get the arm moving and and kind of break up all the stuff so to speak and then the next day is the day that i throw my bullpen so i'll stretch it out to maybe 200 200 plus that day um get loose get a little bit of arm strength stuff like that go through my bullpen which is pretty much the same as my routine in the bullpen before I pitch, um, 35 pitches. Maybe if, if a, during a bullpen, if it doesn't go well, I might, you know, throw an extra five to 10 to work on something. The next day after that, which would, I would call it day three, I would say that I probably go one, 150-ish that day. Um, kind of work my way back from there. And then once I get out to 150, on the way back in, you know, pretty aggressively, not, not really pull down, so to speak, but, but aggressively working my way back in from 150 feet. And then once I get in there, I'll, I'll throw all my pitches just with a, with a guy standing up. Just, I like to throw them. I like to have that repetition of, of not just throwing fastballs. So I'll throw a couple of everything, call it a day. And then, the day before, distance-wise, I probably only go out to 90 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, go out to 90 feet, come back in, and I'll throw a 10 to 15 pitch flat ground. Just again, trying to trying to just re-ingrain the delivery, and then you know, just get a feel for throwing each pitch that day, type thing. Absolutely. And then I'll go through after that. I'll go back on the mound and do some dry runs for maybe five, 10 minutes. Gotcha. And I think a lot of people listen to that and they, they have, you have to be careful what you take from it. There's, you know, be kids that say that Corey doesn't believe in long toss and this, that, and the other. It's, it's, it's depending on the time of year. So in the off season, you know, the, the time you start throwing will, will vary based on workload when the season ends and all that. But you are a guy who will stretch it out really good. You'll, you'll also do it in 20 degree weather at times. Um, how far out yeah. will, do you like to take it? Um, and you know, maybe give them a little bit of insights into what we've done on like the, the long toss, the weighted ball side of things in the off season as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not against long toss by any means. I just trying to manage volume and manage workload throughout the course of the season. Mm -hmm. For me, I don't, I don't feel the benefit of really stretching it out and stuff. I'd rather save those throws for closer and on the mound for, you know, where I'm actually going to be having to, to do stuff. Um, but yeah, during the off season when we're building up arm strength and stuff, I like to I like the to long toss, stretch it out. I like to 
take my time throughout the course of the offseason getting back there. I don't like to aggressively work my way back to long toss and then spend a lot of a lot of days out there. I'd, I'd rather kind of slowly build my my way up throughout the course of a few weeks to a month to get stretched out and then once I'm out there to then start becoming more aggressive at that point. But yeah, that's say during the off season we've probably stretched it out to two forty, maybe even two seventy sometimes if if it if it uh works out, you know, weather wise, schedule wise and we can get outside and do it. And you and you like to read uh, ball flight, like that's an important thing for you early on, because I know you, whenever possible, you like to avoid throwing in the net. And um, talk about why that's the case. I know, like you know, even playing catch the couple, first couple weeks in December, you always want someone who's throwing with you to give you that level of feedback. Yeah, I think that it's it's trying to reingrain that muscle memory of you know, for me, I don't throw once the season's over. I don't throw until I start my throwing program. So I've gone sometimes a month and a half plus without throwing at that point. So I think that things, things can change as far as the way you feel or what you think you're feeling pretty quickly in that sense. And so for me, the reason that I like to, to see the ball in the air as opposed to just throwing into a net is that I think not having a great grasp when you first start on how you want it to feel, you can sometimes get into bad habits, whether it be, you know, you, you feel like you're powerful through, through your throwing motion, but maybe you're getting on the side of the ball or something like that. And I'd, I'd rather see it and know that my hands in the right spot and I'm releasing it the right way, things like that to get that initial feedback and hopefully not go too far down the road in the off season of doing it incorrectly. Absolutely. The, one of the highlights of, of our, previous actually two off seasons ago i think it was was on friday morning i got a text message and i think it was me pete dupuy drover hagen from the tigers was on it who's one of his close friends it was from christian wonders and the text was playing catch with papa k on monday for the first time and i think it was like a fire me up let's go text message you want to tell the story of what happened in your first throwing session with christian on that monday yeah that was probably one of the ones where uh we should have just maybe made the five minute drive down the road to a to a turf field instead of tried to get cute and throw indoors with with white walls and you know not probably a great background to to play catching but we were thrown on the turf um i think since the wall has been painted red yeah but we learned we learned our lesson (laughs) they were white at the time and uh you know we got back to probably 90 feet and I guess it goes back to that uh, wanting to see the ball flight and stuff. I had I had thrown probably five or six good two seams uh, to him at ninety feet, and then the next one did not get my hand in the right position, and it instead of of running, it cut, and it was late cut. But um, yeah, he uh, didn't get a glove on it. I thought initially that it hit him in the chest because, you know, he, it didn't really phase him. Like it, it, it hit him and then he, he wore it like a champ. He hesitated for a second, walked over, got the ball and kept throwing. Um, and so I was like, man, like I squared him up. I was, I thought it would have at least knocked the wind out of him or something, but, and then we get back into like 45 feet and his, his eyes swollen and starting to shut and stuff. And the next day he's got a black eye and, I, he never made mention of it to me that day. I didn't know until like the next day, really, that it hit him pretty much square right in the face. He wore it like a champ. <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's a great catch. He did great catch partner right there. Quality yeah. teammate. Um, so he's, he's improved. He's improved since then. I don't think he's missed any since. Not that he's probably caught bullpens over the years. He's 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 cleaned it up. Christian's uh, yeah, Christian's a heck of a sure. receiver now. So uh, yeah. battle scars though, and, and good lessons good we can, or g- good stories to tell his grandkids, right? Um, yeah. So, all right. So let's talk training a little bit, uh, because this is kind of where some of the stuff we've done maybe has deviated a lot from what most guys do on five day rotations and, and even like the off season stuff. So, um, you know, speaking in the context of 
off-season stuff, like for, for a long time, you had been a four-day-a-week guy all the way through the off-season. I'd say probably two years ago, um, you know, we would, we would start going in four days and then we'd, we'd taper it back to doing like three days of a week of full body um, as the off-season got going on. And tell me about a little bit about kind of like why you felt like we needed to trend that direction and, um, and how it's changed things up for you. Yeah, I think that I think that I generally speaking I like to to get in the weight room. I like to move weight. I like to to do stuff. So I think that's why we always went with the the 4-day routine is I feel better the more often that I'm doing stuff. Um I don't usually take a recovery day so to speak throughout throughout the year just because the more i'm moving the more i'm doing stuff the better i feel so that we always went with four days with you know movement days as well things like that but i think that i started to recognize that whether it be logging innings or getting older i wasn't i wasn't recovering from doing that you know i would I would go in and I would get in a lift on Monday and Tuesday I would feel like I couldn't do what I wanted to do in there or it was way too hard to do what I wanted to do. And then by the time Thursday rolled around, I still couldn't do what I wanted to do. And then Friday it was like, all right, I just got to try to get through this. You know, I can't get anything out of it. I just got to try to get through it. And so I think that recognizing that it was probably too much for me at that point in time, having to, adjust and compress things into one fewer day that way I gave myself a chance to recover so that number one I didn't hurt myself but number two I could attack my sessions the way that I wanted to and not just feel like I was going through the motions absolutely and and we even talked too about kind of a little bit of a shift um and, and I'll go off on like the mini soapboxes if you look at the research strength actually sticks around really really well um you know to the point that you could probably go in and do one heavy lift every you know 25 to 30 days and you're probably not going to really detrain your strength much so you've done a, a good job over the years of building a really solid foundation but one of the things that's that we actually realize that a lot of athletes fall off with the quickest is is kind of the the power development side of things having to train speed and and that's something that we've we've hit a lot more um in the offseason so kind of pairing back a little bit in the weight room doing more sprinting more jumping more med ball stuff just a chance to give you that regular exposure to that but also consolidating those stress into specific blocks throughout the week instead of trying to beat you up every day um is important but that's also played into kind of what we've done with five day rotations and seasons so maybe talk about the different approaches that you've you've had with respect to lifting between starts you know what we've done the last couple years and then you know kind of where you're headed now yeah i think on that on that same you know focus of of recovering like the way that i look at a five-day routine is you're trying to use those those four days in between starts to get yourself number one to feel the best you can when it comes your day to pitch but number two to feel the same every time it, it's your day to pitch you know i don't i don't want to feel great one time and then feel like i'm dragging the next time and then the next time i feel great again you know i'd rather I'd rather maybe give up a little bit on that day that I feel great in order to not have that day that I'm dragging. So I think that kind of having that consistent that consistent feeling the day that I pitch is what drives how we schedule the days in between. And I think that the same thing, you know, we used to we used to lift hard twice between every start and same thing, you know, didn't feel like I was by the time August, September got around, I just wasn't quite recovering as well. And we were having to back off of lifts and stuff. Um, and, but you know, we made it work. We would, we would make the adjustment and stuff, but I think that our idea in, in making some, in making those adjustments was that maybe there's a better way to do this to where we don't have to drastically change it so much throughout the course of the year, but we can have a plan that will, you know, kind of ride out how good you feel in June throughout the the course of the rest of the season. Absolutely. So last year we did, you actually lifted immediately post game, um, which is a little bit of an organizational disaster. Uh, you know, having the barbell like loaded for you when you come out and modifying the amount of volume that you would do, um, you know, in that session, 
based on what the workload in the game was. So the goal there was to kind of consolidate stress and then, you know, make day one a real, you know, a good recovery day, which allowed you to lift again on your bullpen day and then kind of have those two wild card days, depending on how you felt, where you could push volume or pair back on a little bit with the sprinting you did, the throwing you did, the med ball stuff you do. Um, this year, plan of attack, you're going to go back to the day one lift, right? Yeah. So instead of lifting after I pitch, I'm going to try to do more of a, uh, a reset after I pitch. So, you know, before last year, I would pitch, come in, do my do my shoulder stuff in the training room, and be done with it. You know, never really did anything to counteract all the the forces and the things that get in different positions out of whack by pitching. So now the idea is more to, after I'm done pitching, you know, spend. 30 minutes in the weight room kind of doing what I, what I call a reset to try to hopefully speed up the process of, of recovering or getting things back in the right spot, so to speak. So get back to the neutral. Yeah, yeah. So that the next day I can, I can have a good lift, but part of that lift doesn't have to be making sure that, that things are aligned from, from the day before. Exactly. So I think that, you know, I mean, we talked about last year, I felt like I recovered really well from lifting after the games and lifting after my bullpens. But we both thought that maybe I, I lost a little bit more throughout the course of the season from not being able to be as aggressive in those lifting sessions. Yeah. And so I think that, that hopefully trying to, to find the middle ground with those two, two concepts will, hopefully allow me to recover as well as I did last year, but maintain, you know, my base like I had in years previously. Absolutely. And you're, you've been a big Mark pro guy since kind of before it was cool to be a Mark pro guy. When do you utilize it? And is it a daily thing? And and how do you time it up? I kind of just, I kind of use it when I feel like I need it. Like if my arm's a little cranky one day and I need to, you know, wake it up, I'll use it before I throw before I go to the field or if I feel like it was extra stressful to do things um when I was out there throwing that day I'll use it post to try to again speed up recovery and and get things pumped out of there that that don't want to be in there um so I don't really have a a routine with it I'm more so I'm more so kind of listen to my body as far as when I feel like it's necessary to do it because the biggest benefit I feel from it is that it gets, you know, those muscles pumping, gets things moving. And that's what, when I feel the worst is when things aren't moving or moving well. So the more I can get them moving, the better I feel in general. Absolutely. And I think the other thing too, is you, you can probably do a little bit less in that regard because you are really good about getting manual therapy between outings. What's kind of like a, from a soft tissue standpoint, what do you like to do on those four days between starts, um, day by day? Yeah. Uh, uh, honestly, it's probably something, something every day. Uh, you know, the, the day after I pitch is, you know, aggressive soft tissue on my arm the next day of my bullpen, you know, do some, some activation stuff prior to going out and throwing and then some, some manual shoulder exercises afterwards day after my bullpen, I'll generally do dried needling. And then the day before I pitch a flush just to kind of get everything hopefully feeling good for the next day absolutely all right so we're gonna we're gonna rock and roll with the lightning round here this is these are the the shorter answers Um, okay so what advice would you give to a teenage Corey kluber be patient that's a good answer um what about college Corey kluber (laughs) be more outgoing all right what about minor league Corey kluber um Probably the same be patient as the teenage Corey Kluber. <laughs> yeah, probably. I got gotcha. you. You always want to, you know, you always want to be at the next level, be at the next level, be at the big leagues. But in in all reality, you know, if, if you're not there, there's there's a reason why, and you have to kind of 
trust that process. If you had to describe John O'Neill's personality in one adjective, what would it be? Sneaky. There you go. So it's a combination of quirkiness, hidden wit, all that stuff. It's a great one. Um, what's more important, stuff or command? Command. All right. Favorite teammate of all time and why? Uh, I'll say Carlos Carrasco just because, I mean, number one, he's he's a great guy. You know, he's he's there for other people, but I think that he also, he keeps things light every day when you come to the field, you know, joking around. And I think that's important throughout the course of the season is that, you know, things have to be, you can't be all serious, all business all the time throughout 180 days. Absolutely. Now, what pitchers do you like to watch and why? Honestly, I will watch. It doesn't matter whether it would be Max or Kershaw or a guy who just got called up the day before. I mean, I think that when, when guys do something well or do something that is uncommon, I think that, that that's what's intriguing to me is watching guys, you know, do something either I can't do or watch them do something that people don't do often. So find inspiration wherever you can. Yeah. I like it. All right. So one of the things that we also are talking about with a lot of the young athletes and coaches on this podcast is, you know, like what, what are they looking for? So you're going to have college coaches, high school coaches that, that they're listening to this what are some of the characteristics that you've noticed in the coaches that have had the most profound impact on you what do you look for in a coach that you know is really going to be able to help you and at the opposite end what are the characteristics of the ones that maybe have kind of been roadblocks to your development um i mean i think that the most important thing about coaching or being coached is is communication you know and i guess that goes back to the the ones that that don't work as well is you know i think that the ones that do stuff good are ones that communicate and you talk about things together and you figure things out together the ones that at least for me haven't worked out well are the ones that are married to an idea and you're going to do it this way and this is the only way it's going to work just you know nobody's the same that that might have worked for somebody else but it, it might not work for you so i think that trying to force the issue on something usually creates pushback from the athlete, but it also, you know, it doesn't develop a good relationship to where the, to the point where they probably aren't going to have as much trust in you moving forward with what you tell them. If you're trying to make them do something that even if it's just the way that you say, it doesn't make sense to them. Um, all right. So in, in closing, one of the things that we know is that behind every successful man is a usually a badass woman. And Amanda is a great example. She's a, she's a fitness and healthy eating uh, enthusiast. Um, talk a little about what that's meant for facilitating your success um, in the challenges of kind of like a crazy major league calendar with a young family. Yeah, she's, she's unbelievable in the way that she, you know, handles – raising the kids honestly by herself for probably a third of the year, you know, we're on during the season last half the year and we're on the road for half of that. So, um, you know, I, I think that having that, that confidence in her that, that she can, she can handle that stuff obviously makes it easier to, to go out and approach your work day without having to worry about, obviously you're still worrying about it, but worry as much about, you know, what's happening at home away from that. You don't, have an impact on or have control over and i think that you know in a lot of ways a family can be i guess i don't know i don't know if reassuring or calming would be the right word but like you know it's so you're so focused on baseball doing this 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 throughout the course of the day that i think that having at least for me having a family to come back to when that's over helps me to get away from it to where you're not digging yourself in a hole but i think also you know like we talked about having having the reassurance that that everything's everything's going to be taken care of because she does such a good job with it that you know there's a lot of things that i probably 
do or should deal with that I don't necessarily have to because she takes care of them for me. Absolutely. And in, in wrapping up, you guys have done some really cool stuff together with the Kluber Family Foundation. Talk a little bit about what it is, how it originated, and how listeners can can support it. I mean, it originated just Amanda and I have had a lot of opportunities through the Indians, you know, to to visit different places, to have different people come to the field. And we recognized that, number one, it was a good experience for the people that we were able to meet with. But number two, it was a good experience for us as well. You know, it was something that was impactful for us. And we felt like we wanted to to do more in that sense. And, you know, the, the community that, that we have or that we've worked with in Cleveland has always been great to us. So trying to figure out a way to, to in turn do more for the community. So we started the foundation, which is, you know, the, the one thing that we always would come back to with whether we would visit people or they would visit us was the pull of, of kids who were ill. Um, you know, just, it pulls at your heart, you know, but I think that you can also see how impactful just making their day better can be for them. So, so trying to do things for those kids, whether it be having them come out to the ballpark and watch batting practice or raising money or doing something in a hospital to make their stay there, they're better. Um, you know, that's, that's the overriding goal of it is just to, to try to make the struggles that they're going through a little less. Absolutely. That's awesome. So folks can learn more about it at coreykluber.org. Um, they can find you on Instagram at ckluber28. I'd say you you update that at least twice a year. You're, you're really overachieving on the social media side, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm a big social media guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but with that said, obviously, it's it's been awesome working with you for an extended period of time, but also seeing, I think, all the hard work that goes in behind the scenes that a lot of people don't realize. So hopefully, over the last hour or so, we've gotten a chance to, to glimpse into that and some, some of the young players and coaches um, and parents can really take a lot from this. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Awesome. Best of luck this season. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the first official episode of the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. To stay up to date with the show, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, and you can do so by reaching out to Eric Cressy personally on Instagram or Twitter at the handle at Eric Cressy, by emailing us at EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com, or by leaving a review for us to read on iTunes. If you enjoyed the show, we'd lastly ask that you please share this with a friend, colleague, teammate, or anyone else whom comes to mind. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to our show, and we'll see you next time.